Welcome back to the third season of the U.S. Naval History Podcast. I'm your host, Chase Dalton. And in today's episode, we're going to be talking about some of the geopolitical context for the beginning and the ends of World War II in the Pacific, and the extent to which we can draw lessons about potential future naval conflict between the United States and China. And with me to discuss this is none other than Ian Toll, who's one of the best naval historians and authors working today. Most recently, he is the author of the Pacific War Trilogy, Pacific Crucible, The Conquering Tide, and The Twilight of the Gods, which I read and are amazing and highly recommended, and I will link those in the show notes. Welcome, Ian. Uh, Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. I'm going to lead off by saying that we're not going to be talking too deeply about the tactical battles generally in World War II. You know, listener, if you're interested in that, there's episodes 9 through 12, which go into World War II. And this is going to be more of a strategic overview and how it compares today and potential future war in the Pacific. And so the first broad subject and theme that I want to talk about was the road to war decision-making by Japanese leaders. And one thing that, that stuck out at me as I was reading your book and, and some others was the Two-Nation Navy Act of 1940. It expanded naval budgets by 70%. And I did some math, and this is the equivalent of expanding the United States Navy's budget by $203 billion today. And this is just a absolutely stupefying amount of money. And how much did that play into the Japanese decision-making and create a strike now before the window closes mentality? Uh, yeah, I think that that was important. Um, that was an important consideration. It, it was really that and and their oil problem, uh, which was created by, you know, our effectively embargoing oil exports to them. But yeah, they were able to look at our naval buildup and, uh, and, and anticipate that there would be a point at which our much, much larger economy was simply going to overwhelm them. And so uh, that did contribute to this idea that, um, you know, there, there really is no better time than now uh, to strike and that if, uh, if we miss this window, uh, then we may never have an opportunity to challenge uh, the United States for primacy in the Pacific. And do you think that as the nation sort of beginning in the Obama years pivots to the Pacific and slowly, you know, President Trump recognized some of this and put the focus more on China and is focusing on this more, do you think that there's the potential for a similar dynamic to develop, whereas there's a, a relative high point in, in power, you know, Japanese in 1941 and perhaps, you know, China now or soon, do you think that that's a, a common strategic framework that people can draw some parallels from to today? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, no, no analogy, no historical analogy is perfect, of course. Um, but, you know, in China, you have a rising power that is very conscious of its increasing strength, both military and economic. Um, determined to be the, you know, the dominant power in Asia, um, a, a country that has historical grievances, and those historical grievances have uh, been an important kind of motivating, uh, in, have created a kind of a belligerent attitude, not just on the part of the, of the government, but really a popular kind of feeling among the public. Uh, so, you know, all of those things were present uh, with Japan in the 1930s as well. And so, 
Yeah, again, with that proviso that, um, you know, no analogy is perfect, I think that there is some, some truth in that, yes. And do you think that the the logic of a preemptive strike, right, the pro being you can destroy a lot quickly, the con being you can, it will galvanize the United States and world opinion, you know, and you can have a number of analogies, Pearl Harbor, 9-11, was that after the decision had been made to attack the United States, did that inevitably lead to Yamamoto's preemptive strike on Pearl Harbor? Or were there other serious considerations that had Yamamoto not been Yamamoto were seriously in consideration there? Yeah, I don't think the strike on Pearl Harbor uh, would necessarily follow at all. And in fact, as you say, if uh, someone other than Yamamoto had been in the position of uh, commander-in-chief of the combined fleet at that time, that might not have been placed on the table. Uh, there was a lot of opposition to that idea in Tokyo and in the Naval General Staff. But pulling back the frame just for a moment, I, I want to say that um, the decisions made by Imperial Japan uh, prior to and during the Second World War, I think the one thing that often lacks the emphasis that it needs is to really just understand how divided uh, this regime was and how incapable it really was, honestly, of making rational decisions. And so, you know, Japanese decision-making from, say, the mid-1930s on, right through the end of the war, is essentially uh, this kind of, kind of contingent search for uh, a very fragile consensus among different factions uh, within the Japanese ruling circle, which included both civilian and military elements, the military growing uh, stronger steadily uh, through the 30s, and then really the power of the military to drive all decisions in Japan was not really broken until 1945. And, um, and so you have a deeply divided uh, ruling circle in which this political contest is often being decided, you know, not just through the normal mechanisms of government, debate and so forth, but through violence and the threat of violence and the threat of a broader insurrection, even. Many Japanese leaders said that in 1941, when the decision was made finally to go to war against uh, the United States and Great Britain, that the alternative to uh, going forward with that fateful decision to attack these two powerful countries simultaneously while the Japanese war in China was still not resolved that that decision right. was essentially the alternative to a civil war. Uh, and so that, that was the feeling in the atmosphere in Tokyo, is that we have a, internal divisions which we simply cannot reconcile, uh, and that the way to keep a lid on this volcano in Tokyo uh, is by going forward with a foreign war. And so re really they were, just, they were sort of being driven by, by events, and and it was a, a really a, a regime that was incapable of making rational decisions. There was no way to resolve contradictions between different factions, between the army and the navy. Uh, so, you know, really you have a sort of a, a regime that's sort of stumbling into war with, you know, many uh, leaders, including the military, understanding in advance that this war is likely to end in a disaster and yet feeling powerless to stop it. And so, you know, Yamamoto had spent a lot of time in the United States, and he had he went to Harvard, but he famously did not spend a lot of time studying. He arguably put it to much better use. He went and saw the 
the industrial might of the United States in Detroit. He saw it in Texas, where we're producing the world's most abundant source of oil. And, and he understood the, the industrial strength of the United States in a way that he was not able to convey or get the rest of the, the Japanese leadership to understand. Were there other factions, and was it difficult for those factions to get the rest of the Japanese government to understand um, and conceptualize that the United States had a six times bigger industrial base, right? What was the main stumbling block? Was it just you know, where Japanese were inherently better or um, you know, the Japanese leadership, they're not, they're not dumb, but there was something wrong in that decision making. What was that, if you could diagnose from afar? Yeah, I mean, so again, I would I would return to this theme of um, civil uh, violence, assassinations, the the threat of insurrection. So, you know, all of these debates, to the extent that there were debates, they're taking place within a tiny circle of people who are really aware of what's happening, in which um, you know many of them have good reason to fear for their lives. Government by assassination. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and this had been the whole history of the 1930s, beginning with 1931. You had had uh, high-ranking uh, military officers, prime ministers, other members of the cabinet who had been assassinated. Um, you had had a, an attempted coup d'état uh, launched by one of the dominant factions in the army in February 1936 that had not been put down until the uh, emperor actually intervened personally uh, to make it happen. The, uh, you know, the um, incursions into Manchuria and then into China, both had been kind of engineered uh, within factions of the army. And those incursions, those those uh, events, incidents, as they called them, essentially had been pr- presented as kind of a fait accompli in Tokyo. So, you know, you, you had um, ambitious officers, elite officers down the ranks, kind of in the middle ranks of both the army and the navy, uh, who didn't have full responsibility for this government's decisions, who were determined to kind of take Japan to war. And then you had an inability, essentially, to sort of keep them in line. Yamamoto is an interesting case because he was, um, aside from just being kind of a fascinating character, uh, he was, by 1941, a very, very sen- senior admiral uh, who had been earlier associated with what was called the Treaty Faction. And this was a faction within the Navy uh, the Japanese Navy, which had favored essentially um, working within the framework of an alliance historically with Great Britain and um, and with uh, diplomacy in order to kind of manage Japan's gradual rise as an economic and military power, but without uh, provoking outright conflict with any of the major European powers or the United States. And, um, and yet he had, uh, just through, I, I think, being a very adept uh, politically, had, had uh, managed to avoid being tossed out of the Navy in many of the purges that had essentially broken the power of that uh, treaty faction. Uh, so, you know, he was vice minister of the Navy um, during the, you know, kind of critical years of 1938-39. He'd been a leading opponent of the decision to sign the alliance with Italy and, and Germany, the tripartite pact, the Pact of Steel that created the Axis. And and then he had been completely against the idea of going to war with the United States in particular. And he drew upon his experience, as you say, having done two tours of duty in the United States, he kind of knew the country better than most 
senior military officers, um, saying, you know, our, our problem here is that we may have a, a brief advantage, a, a sort of a temporary advantage in the Pacific if we strike, uh, but the United States has a much, much bigger economy, and when they mobilize it, we're just not going to be able to keep up. And so you, if you don't have a plan to end the war, uh, you, you shouldn't start it. And so, and he was very persistent in this argument. Part of the reason he was moved from the naval ministry to the uh, command of the combined fleet, which was a seagoing uh, command with, in which he would uh, actually be serving on his flagship, a battleship, was to protect his life uh, because he had been uh, threatened with assassination by various right-wing groups and and uh, there was a very real sort of fear that he probably would be killed uh so that i did not know that yeah I mean, it just kind of reminds you of this of this environment you got, got to constantly remember so just finished point the um you know yamamoto is opposed to the decision to go to war with the united states he's probably the leading opponent within the regime uh, he's very persistent in um, communicating, even after he's moved out to the fleet, communicating with leaders in Tokyo saying, don't do this. Uh, and then only when it became clear that this war was coming, that he was powerless to stop it from coming. At that point, he insisted upon this preemptive strike on the U.S. fleet in Pearl Harbor. And, uh, and that's a bit of a riddle because uh, while that attack you know, it was planned and executed brilliantly. Uh, I think it was generally, a, a, you have to agree, it was an effective attack. Uh, many have criticized, you know, elements of the Japanese kind of plan to strike Pearl Harbor, have noted that it, they could have done much worse to us. But they did knock out our entire battle line. Our, all of our battleships uh, were knocked out of action in this. In- and it wasn't obvious at the time that the carriers... Well, ironically, it was the Pearl Harbor attack, which made it obvious that the carriers were the um, were the capital ship of choice during this war. And before that, nobody knew just because the, the expertise had not been developed in warfare. And But Yamamoto failed to anticipate that this political um, uh, reaction in the United States would be, you know, to unite the country, galvanize the term often used. Really what happened was the isolationist movement, which had been very powerful in American politics, you know, which had united elements of the right and left. You had strong support in both parties, Republicans, Democrats. It was the uh, regionally, it was sort of spread out across the country, although strongest in the Midwest. There's a very, very significant political uh, force, this isolationist sentiment. And that was destroyed by the attack on Pearl Harbor. I mean, literally, just overnight. It was an extraordinary change. And by doing that, it solved FDR's greatest problem, which was how to get the U.S. into this war in a united way. And so um, Yamamoto, for all of his vaunted kind of experience in the United States, really apparently failed to anticipate that at all. You know, I can't imagine that the response would be different for any other preemptive strike. And closest parallel that we have, you know, in the past slightly over 20 years now is 9-11. And that absolutely galvanized the country to go forth and, and have 90 plus percent support for the invasion of Afghanistan and the country in those early years of the war on terror was very strongly for it, it you know, essentially strike on the homeland and, and any future hot conflict with China over Taiwan being the, the likely instigation of that, a potential invasion of Taiwan is, it has to be going through the Chinese leadership's thought process that, you know, if they assess that they can execute their war plan without striking 
Korea, Japan, Guam are bases there, and if they assess that they cannot, does this drive them to a similar mental calculus as Japan pre-World War II? And perhaps, and I'm sure there's some different opinions there, and there's a lot of smart policy people in China who know that any strike would galvanize the U.S. public to a, a very high degree. But is that information being believed and relayed in a credible way to the final decision makers in the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party? And, and that's an, an unknown that will, that will only be known if and when that scenario plays out and uh, many years later when, when the archives get it cracked. Yeah, I mean, you know, a Chinese um, regime has has made it clear that they kind of have contempt for our system of government. It's it's messy, it's chaotic, you know, maybe now more than ever before. But it's a good question to ask is how carefully are they analyzing domestic politics in this country and how, you know, the leadership circle in particular, how well briefed are they on how likely their moves are likely to to affect politics here because you know for better or for worse uh, in our system the people are sovereign and really it has been true throughout our history that uh, foreign wars in particular that don't involve direct attack on the US homeland by which I really mean North America you know to sustain kind of support for foreign military action um, that you know that that often is difficult. It's often uh, very difficult to do beyond, say, three, four, five years. And, uh, and adversaries who are able to kind of cleverly anticipate changes in the domestic political scene here, in a sense, have a real advantage, you know, in the same way they can misconstrue the character, the temper of the American people as the Japanese did before the war. Uh, but there, there really is yeah. just a whole other kind of layer of analysis that has to be done for authoritarian uh, countries that, or dictatorships that have to uh, confront democracies that are unpredictable. And have a whole different set of priorities compared to what our political system – our political system has to be relatively responsive to what the average person wants. Otherwise, someone else is going to be in charge. But there's – again, for better or worse, in some scenarios better, in some scenarios catastrophically worse – the authoritarian government can do its own thing until until it's truly forced to take an alternate action. And so another aspect of the Japanese decision to go to war was the lack of resources that they had to to finish the invasion of China when we cut off oil and scrap metal and and you know is there is there a parallel between chips and AI and other tools that, that we could be denying China. But that's, I mean, would a strategic campaign to isolate the Chinese economy be a push factor to war, similarly to the United States' sanctions on Japan? Yeah, I mean, in that case, I think the analogy is a little, bit, a little more labored. Um, Japan was then, as it is now, a country that is virtually destitute of natural resources, you know, not just oil, but minerals and rubber. I mean, everything that they needed really to make their war machine go, they had to import uh, in in uh, the 1930s. And so as the uh, U.S.-Japan relationship deteriorated in the late 30s, mainly over the issue of the uh, Japanese militarist aggression in China, also um, the Axis Pact, uh, which was signed in September 1940, 
uh, FDR <clears throat> essentially instituted a policy of sanctions, which had, and, the, and the spigots had been tightened gradually, bit by bit, and um, ending with effectively a complete embargo uh, of oil. And this uh, uh, situation was created a, essentially a need to act immediately because they had had stockpiled oil, but they were using an immense amount of it, and they they were simply not able to replace the uh, imports uh, from the United States, which accounted for between 80 and 90 percent of their oil imports. And so <clears throat> essentially they were confronted in the mid, in mid-1941 with a, a choice between either essentially accommodating American demands, which might require them to abrogate their alliance with Nazi Germany and pull out of China, or essentially going and taking another source of oil, a source of oil that they wanted to take uh, and did take was the Dutch East Indies or Indonesia, which had the largest and most productive oil fields in Asia. And so, But then they had the problem of the Philippines were still in between right. the Dutch East Indies. And so we at any time could still very easily cut them off and, and then the war in China would be lost. And that was unacceptable to factions of the army. That goes back to the civil war thing you were talking about where if the army was not allowed to complete its conquest of China, then that was unacceptable to factions of the army, right? Yeah, I mean, it just seemed like it was impossible. Uh, if Even if the emperor had stepped forward and ordered it, it's unlikely that that order would have been followed. Uh, you know, and Japan's also watching what's happening in, in Europe. You've got Hitler's essentially has established a complete domination over Western Europe, not counting the UK, of course. And, and this uh, invasion of the USSR, which had begun in June 1941, the German armies appeared to be advancing without almost any obstructions at all on, on Moscow. So it really did look like Russia was going to fall uh, when the Japanese made this decision to go to war in the Pacific. And uh, so there was very, very much of a mentality of uh, the democracies are finished. The fascist imperialist model is simply stronger that the Axis countries are going to dominate the world in the future, and that um, we better get in, in on this now to make sure that uh, we essentially are able to, to uh, seize all of these uh, territories and colonies of uh, the British and Americans in particular. So that, there was a feeling that you, know, you, you had to take advantage of events in Europe in particular as well. Awesome. So moving on from the Japanese pre-war planning to the other concept I wanted to talk about, and, and you talk about a lot in, in your, your trilogy, is the learning that happens in the war. And World War II put the somewhat belated nail in the Mahanian battleship dominance coffin. And that was one of the immediate learning points about what works and what does not in December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor. And then the following elimination of British Task Force Z on December 10th off the coast of British Malaysia were sort of the two days that for sure ended the, the battleship and big gun dominance and started, and started the carrier dominance. Although, ironically, it was the Japanese who were the last major power to, to realize this. Right. Why were the Japanese unable to realize the revolution that they heralded? They could see the successes that they were having. And they kept building these massive battleships. You know, I think a lot of it is that the um, you had politics within Japan that um, 
again, even within the Navy, it was difficult for them to make rational decisions. They had actually built a superb carrier force. Uh, the Japanese carrier force that hit Pearl Harbor at the beginning of the war was qualitatively probably the best in the world at that point. Their frontline aviators uh, were some of the best. They had excellent planes. And the Zero was a weapon that we had not anticipated. In fact, we knew very little about it. And our leaders had refused to believe that the Zero was capable of the things that it could do, like climb 3,000 feet per minute. Um, and so all of that came as a surprise that, you know, the Japanese had built a formidable carrier striking force, but the way the Japanese Navy was organized really relied to a tremendous degree, even more than in our case, on seniority. And the senior admirals in the Navy were all battleship admirals. And so the idea that you would radically reorganize the Japanese Navy to not only uh, stop building battleships and pour all of that effort into expanding your aviation arm, but that you would put the aviators in charge of the fleet. That was um, a, a sort of a, involved a political revolution that could only occur within the Japanese Navy uh, as a result of, of just a series of devastating defeats. And so it really wasn't until 1944 that the Japanese were willing to say, okay, we got to, you know, we, we, we can't have junior admirals commanding senior admirals because that's just simply not done. It's so foreign to our culture that we can't imagine doing that. So in order to actually put the aviators in charge of the fleet, we would have to retire a whole generation of admirals who are, you know, running the thing now. And so I think that probably more than an absolute refusal to acknowledge reality was the real problem. And, and it's just another example of how dysfunctional in many ways Imperial Japan was. And it's kind of the, the difficulty it had in making rational decisions. Do you think that given that we are three generations removed from the emergence of carriers as the dominant platform, that it's almost inevitable that the next time we're going to learn a similar lesson, that carrier dominance is over and that what's next? I don't Mass drones, unmanned underwater vehicles, long-range ballistic missiles, space-based surveillance, that there's something else that is going to be the crucial naval platform, essentially, or technology? Yeah, I mean, I... I um... I wouldn't want to represent myself as, you know, someone who's, who studied the war games. And, you know, my expertise is really focused on the Second World War. But, uh, you know, it absolutely has been the case throughout the history of warfare that uh, wars bring these kinds of unpleasant surprises. And um, so I think our carrier force is going to acquit itself well if it's forced to fight uh, in the Western Pacific. And I think our submarine force is probably a something that the Chinese have kind of don't have the answers for the extent to which our submarines would contest an invasion of Taiwan. But, you know, absolutely expect surprises and and be, be willing to, to quickly reorient uh, your tactical views as a result. And that's, I think, one of the lessons that as an American, you just can't, cannot help but be proud of the way the World War II Navy reacted to the crisis of yeah. created yeah. by the strike on, on Pearl Harbor. Uh, I think it really revealed that the, the quality of leadership was was really quite quite good 
in, in general in the Navy, the extent to which uh, our leadership and really at every level was able to kind of pick itself up and acknowledge that we were going to have to find a new way to, to fight this war, that the, uh, you know, the aviators were, were going to have to lead the way, and that, uh, and that every action, every, every stage of this fight, you would have to have a, a sort of a, a culture uh, and a process of studying it and mining it for all of the lessons that uh, could be learned and then quickly reincorporate those. And you saw that with amphibious warfare, each successive landing, you know, after the fact, and you can pull the documents uh, out of the files, the, um, the, the kind of objective searching analysis that was done in these after action reports that were done after each action, those lessons really were incorporated then into the planning for the next amphibious landing. And so, you know, and I think that that's something that Honestly, without being sort of a national jingoist, um, this I think was where the the United States really was ready to fight the Pacific War in a way that the Japanese were not. Uh, we were uh, we had a, a more flexible approach, a more sort of plastic approach uh, to reacting to the these contingencies and to constantly kind of reinventing our way of doing things. A willingness to be wrong and to adapt, perhaps. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean, look look at the generation of leaders that was at the highest echelon of our military at the beginning of the Second World War. You know, in the Navy, you've got Ernest King, uh, Bill Leahy, Bill Halsey, uh, Chester Spruance. Nimitz, Raymond Spruance. All of these guys uh, went through the Naval Academy basically between 1900 and 19, Spruance graduated in 1906. Um, so, you know, the turn of the century, they graduated into a Navy that essentially was a battleship Navy, uh, coal-driven. Uh, aviation, the idea that aviation was going to be significant was something that very few people anticipated at that point. The Wright brothers got off the ground in 1903, uh, so all of the advances in aviation that occurred from that first flight, Kitty Hawk, was within the careers of this generation of, of leadership. Well, th- this generation, they they were pre-Dreadnought, weren't they? I yeah. mean, the Dreadnought was launched in 1906, and so right. you said Spruance was the, the last of them. And so these guys were pre-battleship guys that ultimately displayed a remarkable amount of competence, two generations of warship later yeah right going through the battleship and then into the carrier era and they sort of talking about technology and learning one of the things that's a a big topic in the navy today is and this is an anachronistic term when talking about world war ii but the the hider finder concept where there's these very long range missiles that can do long range strike and i would draw some parallels perhaps to a air wing being able to go and strike at the enemy carrier but the problem was we can't find these guys you know they're somewhere the radar is limited there's certainly no satellite you know we're sort of flying these air patrols and if we can find them then we can launch this devastating strike um what sort of learning happened during world war ii in relation to that concept yeah i mean really in every branch of warfare i think that that tactical concept applied um you know obviously the submarine is maybe the ultimate kind of hider uh, that can also deliver a 
you know, a sudden, devastating, decisive attack from a well-hidden position. So from the very beginning, I think the submarine was sort of conceptualized as that kind of a weapon. And of course, our submarine force uh, in the Pacific War probably demonstrated more clearly than any other example in history how a submarine force when deployed in a, com a war of commerce to cut commercial supply lines, to cut the essential raw materials away from the enemy and to force the enemy's war machine to collapse as a result of that, essentially kick out the economic supports. That was the story of our submarines. But in aviation, yeah. um, you know, the the carrier striking force of 1941, 1942, all of the early battles, Coral Sea, Midway, were battles in which essentially the game was to hit the enemy first. And that was the single most important thing to do, strike first. Carriers were very vulnerable. And so, you know, hiding, um, moving quickly, using mobility, uh, trying to find weather fronts to hide your, uh, your flight decks in, and then launching a strike, a sudden strike that um, would disable the enemy carriers before they could mount an effective counter-strike. That was the game, really. It was these kind of fencing matches. And it really wasn't until um, early 1944 when we began to get the kind of the full next generation of our carriers. We had the Essex carriers and the new generation of planes like the Hellcat, um, and then just vastly larger fleets arriving in the war zones in the Pacific. At that point, that kind of warfare really was no longer necessary. Um, we could essentially move our entire fleet uh, right up to a Japanese-held island and, and just sit there and, um, and batter the island's airfields and essentially destroy its ability to mount a counter-strike by air. Um, mm -hmm. And so there was quite a bit of learning just involved in that. And um, in fact, there were you know, major struggles uh, within the planning circles of the Navy, the Marines, um, for, you know, how do you plan these amphibious operations and how, what is exactly is the appropriate way to use this new carrier force? Uh, is it more of a protective role? Is it a more of a, a opportunistic attacking role? And, um, and that, you know, debate was eventually, I think, resolved in, in favor of the, you know, let the aviators uh, and their carrier uh, task forces off the leash you know, let them range far and strike the enemy uh, kind of air power at, at its source, eventually even the homeland of Japan attacking directly with the carriers. But, you know, for the, the kind of major amphibious operations in 1944, you had some pretty remarkable controversies there uh, between what they call the black shoes and brown shoes. Uh, I, I know I don't have to... The, the black shoes being the, the SWOs, the surface warfare officers, and the brown shoes being the aviators for the uninitiated. Yeah. Yeah. And so all, all of those, you know, all, I mean, what's I think particularly fascinating about World War II is a naval war, um, is that the pace of technology, the uh, kind of headlong pace of technological change had created really an entirely new game, a game that no one had ever played before, especially in the Pacific. And so it really is a test of, of leadership and ingenuity uh, to use these uh, new weapons of war in ways that, you know, really you, you had very, very different, all the planning and training efforts that we had before the war, you really had to go and actually fight this war in order to learn how to fight it properly. 
And, um, and that, you know, that learning curve, climbing that learning curve and doing it quickly was the, the test uh, that... So, so one of the technologies was, and this is true both in the Pacific and the European theaters, and it's again true in Ukraine today, where Intel intelligence is absolutely key. And mm-hmm. dollar for dollar, I think these cryptanalysts were the most effective men in the war, yep. other than perhaps a few top generals or admirals who made key decisions. And you know, truly, was there any point of diminishing returns for the intel? And, and why was the Axis so uniformly horrible at intelligence and counterintelligence, and specifically SIGINT? Well, you know, I mean, in the case of the Nazis, I, you know, I'm not sure what the answer is. I mean, they certainly did, you know, go to great lengths in order to try to cloak their communications. And, of course, that's one of the most amazing stories in all of history, the uh, way that the uh, British were able to crack the codes used by the U-boats. But in Japan, I would say that uh, more than anything, it's essentially just sort of a limited manpower you know, they, they just didn't have the manpower to create these very, very large teams uh, of analysts who could go through and, um, and do the tedious work of essentially cracking into an enemy's uh, code. And so they may not have, have even anticipated that that was possible. And it was partly the, uh, you know, American, I would say it was sort of a spirit of you know, it, it may it may seem like an immense problem, but if we just kind of pick at it little by little, if we put enough smart people on it, eventually we may get something useful out of it. And I think the the codebreakers really surprised even themselves with how much they were able to reveal about Japanese plans during the war, and that of course was especially important prior to the Battle of Midway. Yeah. Okay. So moving forward to a, a potential hot war in the Pacific, a second potential hot war in the Pacific. You know, Taiwan gets invaded, a flurry of kinetics follow, and both sides lose a lot of assets. But because both sides have nuclear weapons, nobody's homeland is getting invaded in any significant way. Um, Are there any likely parallels that you see um, from the Allied efforts to isolate Germany and Japan from resources in World War II? And and what happens next in this scenario? Is it blockades, absolute sanctions? Do they work? I mean, they were certainly very effective against Japan. Well, you know, China being a continental power, um, you know, they may not run into the resource constraints. That won't be the first thing uh, that um, that limits their ability to wage war. I think uh, the Chinese government must be looking at the Taiwan Strait right now, which is, you know, 100 miles. It's much, much broader than the uh, English Channel, for example, and, um, and wondering, you know, how, how do we put an army ashore and then support it when you're going to have the militaries of many nations then uh, committed to attacking uh, that cross-strait link? And furthermore, you have a, a large nation in Taiwan that appears determined to maintain its independence. It's a mountainous country. You know, so it's an enormous military problem. And uh, I think that the Chinese must be looking at that and assessing that there are just tremendous risks involved uh, in doing that. And the spirited resistance put up by the Ukrainians against the invasion by Russia, I, I think that that may have bought Taiwan some time. Um, but, uh, you know, my, my view is, is that an attack on Taiwan would be devastating 
to the global economy. And mm-hmm. the Chinese economy is so closely integrated into the global economy, it would be devastating to the Chinese economy, but also to ours. And so really the most important thing is to, to try to avoid any sort of uh, war uh, in the Western yeah. Pacific. Of course, there's only so much we can do, right? But uh, but that really has to be the... Two people get a choice. Yeah. Which, you know, is, is it's maintaining an effective deterrent. You know, it's um, encouraging the Japanese to continue building up their military power. Uh, it's, um, you know, keeping this kind of one China policy, which is this convenient fiction, keeping that together, uh, you know, with masking tape and glue if necessary uh, for another generation, essentially, in the hopes that uh, political circumstances change and uh, China's, you know, either a, a reunion becomes possible. It seems hard to imagine it now, but it was hard to imagine Germany reunifying before 1989. Or uh, essentially that another Chinese generation of leadership essentially decides that uh, they don't need Taiwan that much. It's not important to them. So I think procrastination <laughs> is, is the best <laughs> No, I mean, I, I'm I'm in the same boat. It's uh, the equilibrium now works, and you know, it is going to be a uh, a very bloody and unfortunate occurrence if we have to break that equilibrium. Sort of, no matter which way it ends up breaking. Yeah. So, so we've sort of talked about some lessons that both sides learned during World War Two. I mean. Um, you know, this is just me thinking out loud. Are there going to even be time for lessons to be learned in World War III? Has the pace of warfare gotten so fast? And on one hand, you could say, well, you know, it'll be over relatively quickly. Um, the invasion will fail or it will succeed. But on the other hand, a lot of people thought that that would be the answer in Ukraine as well. Right. And uh, you know, what, what lessons will be learned? Will there be time to learn lessons or will it be what doctrines that we develop right now what strategies that we develop right now we're sort of stuck with yeah it does take time to iterate you know i um was discussing some of these issues with a a retired four-star who i probably shouldn't name recently and he said that he thought the single greatest advantage we had in the scenario of a, a war with taiwan was the quality and the flexibility of our our military, you know, all the way down the line, from the enlisted ranks up through the junior officer ranks to the senior officer ranks, the kind of ability to react to changing circumstances, uh, to learn from them, uh, and to fight if necessary to abandon kind of established doctrines and procedures and adopt new ones. Now, you know, of course, uh, you would expect an admiral to be proud of the force that he leads. Um, but that certainly was true in the Second World War. And uh, I think there are good reasons to think that that would be true uh, again today. We, we don't really know whether the Chinese military is engineered uh, to, uh, to win a, a war in Taiwan. I mean, I think they've tried to engineer it that way, but we don't really know what the capabilities right. are of the Chinese military because uh, they haven't fought in a long time, really. And so there's a big question mark there, I think. But I would be very surprised um, if the, uh, the Chinese military is able to uh, kind of adopt to all of the, the kind of challenges, including the unexpected elements that would come 
uh, from a, a shooting war uh, over Taiwan. And, um, and I do think that our uh, military actually is better engineered for that kind of a challenge. And of course, as we've already agreed, we don't want to find out. You know, as interesting as right. it may be, you know, as, as military analysts or historians, you know, war does reveal a lot. It's interesting that way. Um, yeah, <clears throat> this one, this one, we, we don't want to fight. We do want to make sure that we are maintaining our readiness to fight it if necessary. Yeah, we didn't want to fight the last one either, but it was a um, war is often a, a lesser of two evil, yeah. lesser of two evil situation. And it's not always up to you, right, as an individual country. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, fast forwarding a little bit to some of the war endgames and Japanese decision making, you know, it was pretty clear by, if it wasn't clear by 1942, it was very clear by 1944 that the Japanese had lost and the Allies knew it, the Japanese knew it. And over the last, you know, say 18 months or so of war, it was just a, a fight over essentially the terms of surrender, and if the Japanese would send, surrender unconditionally. Right. In the end, they, they did with a you know, the very minor exception of the emperor's status, but it cost, cost them, what, one and a half, two million extra Japanese lives and a similar number of other lives in the territories they controlled, um, and the absolutely total destruction of their homeland, yeah. you know, burnt to a cinder. Mm-hmm. Um, but because in a, some sort of next World War Three scenario, every side's going to have nuclear weapons, yeah. and this incentive to fight to the death, um, is that taken away, or do both sides simply just keep fighting because the homeland is secure in a way that Japan never was? How, how does that change the psychology, do you think? You know, I think it probably makes it more likely that uh, two nuclear powers would find the means uh, to actually uh, agree to a truce followed by an armistice, followed by a treaty of peace. Um, I, I mean, I, I just think that, you know, China, the United States, the other nuclear powers, I think they kind of understand um, what a fateful step that would be. But I think that that's kind of un, uh, unforeseeable, to be honest, just because we haven't seen an example of a, a great powers going to war really since 1945. So, I, you know, I, I would like to think that, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis provides a, an example of, you know, how both sides step back uh, from that brink after getting very close to stepping over it. Um, mm-hmm. And I'd like to think that that would happen again. I, I mean, the, the uh, assessments on um, the likelihood that Russia would um, actually use a battlefield nuke in Ukraine, I mean, that... that those assessments have actually declined. Uh, we assess them as being less likely now than they were maybe six six months ago. So uh, I suppose that provides some uh, reason to be optimistic on that point. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, we all do. What was the Japanese thinking? Can you go into some more detail on that after it became apparent to, to the reasonable observer that the hope of a victory was essentially gone. What were the considerations that they were thinking of and, and hoping to achieve? Yeah, so for the for the Japanese, it really became clear uh, that they'd lost after the invasion of Saipan in uh, June 1944. 
when we essentially won that battle in July 1944, there was a, a, a very large uh, naval battle fought uh, as part of that campaign, the Battle of the Philippine Sea, in which um, the kind of the last cohort of uh, trained and experienced Japanese aviators was pretty much decimated. And so, you know, it was that, it was a loss of Saipan, um, which was with, within airstriking range of the Japanese homeland that led to a political crisis in Tokyo and the ousting of the Prime Minister Hideki Tojo, uh, who had led the Japanese cabinet uh, since before Pearl Harbor. And at that point, you had a cabinet reshuffling, which for observers outside Japan, it wasn't clear exactly what was going on. Our uh, intelligence analysts were trying to piece together what was happening, but what we now know had happened was that uh, the uh, Japanese emperor, in uh, together with you know certain other kind of powerful figures in the Japanese court and in civilian society, uh, had essentially kind of cut a deal with the militarists to say, we're going to take a sort of a half step toward ending the war, and we're we're going to be secretive about that. Uh, but we're going to bring in uh, a number of people. The key one was Admiral Yanai. Uh, who was brought in sort of as the vice premier. Uh, and he was going to run a kind of a secretive effort within the Japanese government uh, to try to lay the groundwork for a diplomatic exit to the war. Now, no one, uh, I don't think, in the Japanese regime anticipated complete surrender at that point. Uh, the idea that uh, they pull out all out of all of their foreign colonies including Korea, that uh, they would essentially welcome an occupation force onto Japanese soil without a fight. I mean, these things were unimaginable to them in July 1944. But there was this kind of awareness that Japan could not defeat the United States and that really the most it could hope for would be uh, to to make the, the idea of an invasion of Japan so unpleasant that we'd be willing to cut a deal, uh, some sort of a deal. And, and the idea would be Japan would perhaps retain some of the overseas colonies that it had had before uh, the war. And that uh, most importantly, you'd retain the emperor and that uh, you would not have any foreign occupying army on Japanese soil. So of course, the allies really at that point were determined to put an end to Japanese militarism for good and to essentially take all of Japan's foreign empire away. And so those were just incompatible visions for the end of the war. And so really the last year of the war became a fight over which version of this diplomatic exit to the war uh, it was going to be. And then you know, by, you know, by that I mean, you know, the the uh, what the Japanese wanted, I think, were, were after was something similar to the way their war in Russia had ended in 1905 with the help of our government and Theodore Roosevelt, mm-hmm. uh, a, a, a negotiated end to the war in which you would be dividing um, parts of Asia into spheres of influence, uh, recognizing Japan's status as a great power. And Japan, most you know, most importantly, retaining its its independence and sovereignty, um, whereas 
really uh, the American allied concept of unconditional surrender, which was itself a sort of a difficult, uncertain concept. But the, the idea that you were going to destroy Japan's ability to make war permanently uh, through an occupation of the homeland, that was the, the allied version of how the war was going to end. And so uh, really, and we know the history, it really wasn't until the USSR turned on Japan and we dropped the two atomic bombs that um, you had the conditions in Japan for a deadlock, the continuing deadlock to be broken by the emperor. But even then, it almost was not. I mean, there was a, a faction that was, there was essentially a, a coup attempt against the emperor mm-hmm. and a faction that wanted to see Japan truly self-destruct yep. in the face of an allied invasion, right? I mean, that's just very, very foreign to certainly my point of view, but I would say even to modern Japanese society, which is radically different than the World War II era society, just a, a very foreign concept, at least to me. Yeah, no, that's right. It was a, it was a new it was a near run thing too. I mean, it really it could have gone the other way, and it, it was at a point where really every day counted too. Mid nineteen forty five, you know, we Americans, I think, because of the Cold War, the long Cold War, you know, we had tended generations of of writers and historians had tended to underrate somewhat the importance of Stalin's sudden decision to declare war on Japan which he did on August 9th, same day we hit Nagasaki. And, you know, to the Japanese, this was a double blow, because not only were they adding another very powerful enemy, uh, but their kind of sole remaining idea for how to escape this war was to have Stalin come in as a mediator and essentially offer to mediate. STR had mediated between the Russians and Japanese 40 years earlier. Um, and uh, Stalin never had any intention of playing this role of mediator, but he did allow uh, his diplomats to sort of string the Japanese along, giving them half, sort of half a hope that this was going to happen. And this devious uh, policy on the part of the Russians was simply to buy time to allow them to transfer enough of their army ground forces to Siberia uh, to essentially swallow up Manchuria. Stalin wanted, uh, he wanted Hokkaido, the northern island of Japan. And you know, if the war had lasted, say, two weeks longer, probably the Red Army would have swept into Hokkaido, which is, this is one of the four main islands of Japan, so a core part of Japanese territory. Uh-huh. We would not have been able to dislodge them. It would have been a north and south Japan scenario, just like an east and west Germany scenario, right? That's right. And so, and exactly, it would have been essentially a sort of a equivalent of East Germany. Um, and so, you know, that just gives you some idea of, of how high the stakes were and how, how much pressure there was. And, the, you know, many in the Japanese regime anticipated that something like this would happen, that the USSR would land troops in Japan, that you would have essentially a divided occupation, and that in particular, uh, you would then have the spreading of communist ideology into Japan, the ruling circle of Imperial Japan was very fearful of a a communist uh, revolution in Japan. So that's when the logic became kind of implacable at that point. Um, We're we're about to be defeated no matter what. 
much better to surrender to the Americans and the British than, um, than to have to deal with the Russians. So not only do we need to surrender, we need to do it fast. Did the example of the uh, Russian treatment of conquered territories in Europe influence that at all, where the Japanese were looking and be like, and you know, rather rather have an American British French occupation than a uh, significantly more ruthless Russian one? Yes, I think so, absolutely. But even more, I think it was the idea that you know we, we'd be better off with the democracies in charge here than with uh, the Marxists, and because this was a. You know, as as I've said, this was a particular fetish, really, of the ruling circle in Japan, was this idea that um, Japan is ripe for a a revolution from below, a class-based revolution. So there was tremendous fear of that, really almost amounting to an obsession among many of the uh, leaders, not just the militarists, but many of the civilian leaders as well. That's interesting in a a scary what-if Cold War scenario. Yeah. so what, what what were the alternate U.S. plans? Um, you sort of mentioned some of your book where there's Operation Causeway for the invasion of Taiwan, perhaps some invasions of mainland China, but had the atomic bomb taken an extra three months to develop, right? There'd been some technical snafu at some point. Right. Easily could have happened. Right. I mean, you know, one person gets sick and that person, you know, had, had the brilliant breakthrough that advanced it a couple of weeks. Right. You know, what, what were the alternate U.S. plans? What were the U.S. contingencies for this sort of messier surrender Soviet intervention at the end of the war? Well, essentially our plans was uh, to invade Japan, a two-stage invasion, beginning with the island of Kyushu, which is the southern island of Japan. This would have been the largest amphibious landing in history, larger than the Normandy landings, followed, if necessary, by a landing on Honshu, uh, which is the main island of Japan, near Tokyo, and then a, a sort of a huge invasion of the capital, uh, followed by, if necessary, uh, spreading out throughout all of the islands and essentially putting down Japanese resistance one region at a time. And, uh, you know, as, as uh, we've, we've often heard in the kind of retrospective debate over the atomic bombs, this would have been an absolutely awful, awful experience. Um, a genocide. Something close to that, yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, and we would have suffered very heavy troop losses uh, as a result. Easily could have doubled, you know, the, our total losses for the entire Pacific War, for example. And so, um, you know, that was the kind of the principle. Well, you know, there was a third alternative, which was essentially uh, to play a waiting game, to continue to kind of close the net around Japan, cut off all shipping in and out completely destroy the Japanese ability to control their airspace and then to just continue bombing their uh, urban areas and industries until they came to their senses and surrendered. Uh, And so, you know, that was sort of the Air Force slash Navy uh, idea of, you know, how you could defeat Japan. And remember that, you know, during the planning stages, uh, the circle of people who knew about the atomic bomb was tiny, absolutely tiny. And so mm-hmm. uh, most of the military leadership that were developing these, these competing kind of ideas of how to play out the Pacific Endgame really had no idea that, uh, that we had these weapons until they were dropped. Or like in MacArthur's case, for example, he was informed, I think, just a couple days in advance. Um, Nimitz had been informed uh, earlier than that only because 
the bombs were going to be carried by the 501st unit of B-29s that uh, would be based in Tinian, which was part of his command area. But, you know, the, the uh, atomic bomb project was probably the single most closely guarded secret of the war. And so just for that reason alone, it could not um, come into the kind of the broader military planning at all. It was really limited to the considerations of FDR and a very small circle of uh, civilian and military leaders uh, in the White House and in Washington. There was a really interesting comment that I, I listened to one of your previous talks to, to someone. I think you, you actually did this twice in talks I listened to. And I want to play it and, and get your thoughts on it. And I want to ask a follow-up question if that's all right. Uh, one reason, I think, to study and record the history of war is to understand better uh, the nature of the societies that fight it. I, until recently, lived in San Francisco in the Marina District. And I could walk to the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, and often did from my apartment. And on the pedestrian walkway up to the bridge, there is a public artwork, uh, or I suppose you would call it an exhibit. And what this is is a, a lattice beam of the same type that uh, holds up the bridge on its southern end. And it has been crushed and bent. And when you read the, uh, the captions, uh, they explained to you that what was done was that uh, this beam was taken to Berkeley, where at the Berkeley School of Engineering, uh, the engineers placed it into an enormous machine about three stories high and placed four million uh, tons of pressure in order to test it, in order to see whether it would stand up. And in this case, uh, although it was crushed, it uh, stood up well enough. What the Berkeley engineers did to that beam is what war does uh, to nations, societies, systems of government. Uh, World War II was, in a sense, a struggle between two competing visions of how to organize a society. Uh, the fascist and militarist authoritarian states of the Axis went to war uh, with the proposition that their form of government of organizing a society was inherently stronger uh, than that of the democracies, uh, where uh, the collective strength of the democracies would be frittered away with their internal disputes, uh, with their divided systems of government, with their checks and balances. And of course, what World War II showed was that uh, the democracies once aroused were stronger and also more rational uh, than the fascist and authoritarian models. And so I thought that that was, A, a beautiful metaphor, but also that it was interesting to me in that we not only had very different systems of government, but was it our system of government or our economy, and by extension, the resources that we could put towards science and industry and building tanks and planes and ships and everything else. And while the, the German, the Japanese and the Italian leadership made some absolutely horrifically god-awful decisions, in part because they were not accountable to the public and created this culture where it was not acceptable to question the leader and, and that did create a lot of flaws in the war plan, was that the decisive factor? But when you see that given the huge number of sacrifices that the Japanese were willing to make 
even after victory was futile, I can't help but think that had Japan and the United States been fighting with one-on-one equal GDPs, that it would have come down to essentially a battle of political will. In that case, there would have been a peace faction in the United States. One of the political parties would have said, you know, we're going to accept a, a white peace of some sort. And that would have happened far before a peace faction won control in Tokyo. Yeah, I mean, getting so far into the realm of speculation there, but uh, I think that that's uh, a reasonable hypothetical, uh, certainly. I mean, it was the, you know, we, we really won the Pacific War with, with weight more than anything else. I mean, just the uh, tremendous size of the, of the Navy, the Air Force that we were in, the troop numbers that we were able to bring into the Western Pacific, you know, in a, in a very short period of time, the logistics that it took to not just to create that force, but then to, to project it 6,000 miles across the Pacific Ocean, that that's something that I think we surprised ourselves uh, even and certainly surprised the Japanese. And, um, and without that uh, vast superiority and in, in just kind of inherent economic strength it's very hard to see how we uh, win the pacific war uh, certainly in in that kind of a time so you know you'd be talking about a much longer war that would be uh, dragged out and as you say uh there would be elements within the united states that would say what exactly are we fighting for and why are we fighting so far from home and uh and more likely a piece, maybe a, a piece of the kind that had been envisioned by the Japanese militarists. So um, we can all be grateful and relieved that that didn't happen. Uh, it would have been a much darker future for Asia. But, um, yeah. <clears throat> you know, I, I, I want to add, I mean, listening to, to uh, my voice making that point in some previous speech, I, you know, there is one missing point there, which is that the USSR was also a victor, of course. In, in fact, they did most of the work of destroying the uh, German ground forces, of course, with our uh, tremendous amount of assistance uh, from, from us and our allies. But uh, the you know Soviets uh, had reason to think that their system had worked as well. And that kind of brings, brings us to the present where we're seeing so many of these historical themes echoed in what's happening in Ukraine. And, you know, is Putin's regime kind of capable of, of making, you know, rational decisions. It was obviously a terrible decision to, to invade in the first place. He vastly and the world underrated the, the Ukrainian ability to resist. And, you know, to that theme, I mean, war, you know, war clarifies, it reveals, it tests. Um, single best uh, argument for studying the history of war, I think, is because it has that unique property that it, it just sort of reveals things that you wouldn't know otherwise. But, you know, we've certainly have learned a lot about the Russian army, for example, about its deficiencies, about the role of corruption, the, the role of morale uh, in, um, you know, undermining its ability to, uh, to fight. It's sort of logistical ineptness. Uh, and so, you know, we're in real time kind of uh, watching that point illustrated here is this kind of one-man authoritarian type of model capable of, of kind of regrouping, relearning, and, um, and coming back to sort of perform better in the second year of this war? We're about to find out. And it's very hard to, to tell 
both what's going on in Putin's mind and also projecting forward to the future, where the balance of capabilities lay now in the Pacific and how you know, China and the Chinese Communist Party will perceive that shift in the future. And we've talked a lot today about sort of the road to war decision-making by the Japanese leaders and, and any parallels that may or may not have today. And then the the learning aspect of war that, that always happens. And, and you know, maybe there won't even be time for learning in the next one. Maybe it'll be so short and sharp. Right. Um, but, you know, maybe not as, as Putin has found out. And, and then sort of the end game decision making by all the powers involved. And, you know, but, it, but it's, it's somewhat inevitable that the Chinese industrial lead will grow over time, you know, just given projections. And, you know, as will their technological and training prowess um, as they, they work on professionalizing their military. You know, on the other hand, we, the United States, are belatedly focusing on China as the peer enemy that it is in a whole of nation way that I think is a little bit reminiscent of the Cold War, yeah. um, which, which may close some of that gap. Um, mm. and, and that's, that's uh, you know, my hope is that we can maintain our, our lead. Um, and I'm sort of haunted by, you know, and this will be sort of the closing thing, haunted by the concept that as China has more industrial production in any potential future scenario, while the United States Navy may be better trained, better prepared at the outset, similarly to how the Imperial Japanese Navy was on December 7th, 1941, maybe we do have a very successful first encounter with the Chinese in action. But if it does turn attritional, yeah. can we possibly win? You know, is, you know the, the analogy, the United States Navy is to the Imperial Japanese Navy is to World War II as the plan, the People's Liberation Army Navy is to the United States Navy during World War III, where... We can fight brilliantly, and maybe we don't make a lot of the mistakes that the Japanese did during the war, but ultimately it comes down to weight of industrial action, and in that case, is it a, is it a lost cause? And I, I, don't, I don't think that anybody on earth knows the, the answer to this, but, um, and I certainly don't, but uh, a haunting thought, I think. It is a haunting thought, and um, I, I mean, I certainly wouldn't say it's a lost cause. Uh, but, you know, it is true that we have the map. I mean, you just look at the map of the Pacific and you realize that in this scenario, uh, we're fighting a superpower on their doorstep. And um, what we really showed in the Second World War is that you know, we had the ability to project force in a way that had never been projected before. Of course, we've got our bases in uh, the Pacific. Um, we have allies. Our allies are getting stronger. I mean, Japan's getting stronger. Japan's getting more committed. One of the most interesting things, I think, about this era that we're passing through right now, we just had the uh, Japanese prime minister in Washington visiting uh, with President Biden, is that um, it doesn't feel as if these kind of ghosts of the Second World War and in the Pacific War, you know, we're exercising them. We're doing it. It's happening little by little. But one of the most extraordinary things, really, about the Pacific War is how long those historical shadows have been cast across, you know, still, you know, even now, really at the heart of uh, issues over Japanese war crimes, atrocities, treatment of uh, civilians, treatment of prisoners of war, how the and how those things are remembered, how the Japanese government talks about them, issues of, you know, compensation, reparations, how the history of the war is taught to Japanese students, all of those issues have been live issues in Asian foreign, bilateral foreign relations with Japan. I mean, Japan's relationship with South Korea, with North Korea, with uh, the Philippines, with certainly with China. 
And finally, now that we're kind of getting past 75 years, uh, you know, and, and that this terrible war is, you know, receding bit by bit into the, into the rearview mirror. And as these security challenges and, and potential crises in Asia become kind of more evident, you know, we're, we're able to sort of say, you know, lay those things to rest. You know, the past is the past. And the Japanese in particular, you know, being as large and as important an economy as they are, they've got to step up and they've got to take more responsibility for their own defense and for what's happening in the, in the region. And that issue is very divisive in Japan. But, uh, you know, the JMSDF, this is the Japanese Navy. They're actually not even allowed to call it a Navy. You know, it's extraordinary. So it's, they're still sort of pretending that as a kind of Coast Guard, it's got tremendous capabilities to, uh, to fight with us as allies. And, uh, and that, I think, is an import, increasingly important uh, part of this picture as well. Because, uh, you know, certainly if you look at Asia today, I'd say, yes, the United States is ready to win a war, if necessary, over Taiwan or in Korea. Um, but, uh, you know, if you project kind of longer term in the future, are we going to continue to maintain that kind of a security commitment on the other side of the world just indefinitely? I mean, these are all we're all sort of contingent arrangements resulting from the Second World War and the Cold War. And, um, and there was never really much thinking uh, in the past about what the, you know, what, what period of time we were undertaking these commitments for. And, um, and I do think that, uh, you know, eventually we have to sort of acknowledge that it's not a question of if, but when, really, uh, that our Asian allies have, have got to take a, a larger part in uh, defending themselves against a potentially aggressive and dangerous China. And to what extent they would be willing to take Japan as the natural center of gravity right. um, for any sort of Asian anti-Chinese, uh, you know, that, that perhaps would say too negative spin on it, but a, as the only possible counterweight mm-hmm. for China and East Asia. And you know, it's some of the unique issues stemming from World War II have complicated some of the integration that the United States would like to see in terms of Japanese and South Korean, Japanese and Filipino, Japanese and um, other East Asian allies, their relationship with with us and, and doing multinational exercises and whatnot. And, and that's, you know, something that the Japanese politics is still slowly working through. And similarly, the politics of every other country in East Asia as they balance, you know, some historical fears and injustices that were you know, extracted on them and balancing that with the fact that Japan is, is going to be rising militaristically again. And what what is the lesser of two evils? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of evidence that Japan has you know, significantly changed uh, from their 1930s and 1940s mentality uh, to today. But um, yeah, there, there's still a lot of fear in the publics of, of democracies and, and the democracies will, you know, are responsive to the will of the people. And so... Um, was there anything else that you wanted to, to touch on? Something you thought, uh, you know, we uh, glided by that um, was particularly interesting that you wanted to talk about? Well, I think we've uh, we've we've had a pretty comprehensive conversation. Um, you know, I would just emphasize again that uh, the Pacific War was the war in which we learned how to cross an ocean and to land 
troops on a heavily defended beach. And, uh, and that's just something that was never, had never been done before. And it was, you know, a combination of just a extraordinarily rapid kind of buildup in our military forces. Um, the effort to build the necessary shipping, which really required completely kind of reimagining the shipbuilding industry. Mm-hmm. And then uh, close cooperation between the different branches um, of the military. And, you know, we didn't get in, into the kind of uh, the whole can of worms over service rivalries. But, you know, as a, as a military uh, officer, you know, you, you certainly are aware. I mean, these are constantly it's just sort of a, a permanent syndrome, really. It's a natural rivalry. It can be a friendly rivalry. But the challenge of getting the Navy, the Marines, the Air Force, the Army, the submarine force within the Navy, you know, with the aviators, I mean, uh, these, these are uh, a constant challenge. And, and when you're looking at the kind of warfare that we had to do in the Pacific, particularly amphibious warfare, I think, you're really dealing with this unique challenge of getting these organizations, which during peacetime are often inward looking and kind of independent parochial, parochial to, you know, suddenly and under great pressure and in a short period of time, figure out how to plan joint and execute joint operations. And that's, that's one of the unique challenges that are involved in, you know, any sort of warfare uh, over an ocean environment in particular and uh, in amphibious warfare. Uh, and so, you know, that's a challenge that uh, our military, I think we learned a lot about how to do that during the Second World War. I think we probably do it better than many other militaries. And one of the big questions about this perspective shooting war over Taiwan is how well engineered are the Chinese ground forces, air forces, naval forces, uh, how, how prepared are they to work together in that sort of sustained, intricate uh, cooperation, synchronization that's required to, um, to execute those, those types of very complex operations. Uh, hopefully we never find out yeah. is, is my only answer. And um, I do want to reemphasize for anyone listening that uh, while I still am an officer in the reserves, any views um, that I've expressed are, are very strictly my own and in no way representative of the Department of the Navy, Department of Defense, anybody else uh, associated with the government. And then lastly, I just want to say you know, thank you, Ian, for coming, and thank you, listener, for tuning in. I'm going to include a link to Ian Toll's work uh, in the show notes. And as always, if you have not done so already, please rate and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to. Uh, write a review if you feel so inclined. And of course, shoot me an email at usnavalhistorypodcast at gmail.com about anything and everything. And Ian, you have a, a new book coming up, right? Uh, would, you like to, would you like to tell the listeners about that? Yeah, sure. I'm, uh, I'm working on a sequel to my first book, which was Six Frigates. Um, and this is about the naval war on the Great Lakes during the War of 1812. And uh, the working title is The Freshwater War. That'll probably be out in so, uh, uh, maybe 2025, something like that. Well, I will, I will most definitely be on the pre-order list. And anyone listening to this, uh, you presumably have a, an interest in naval history and you are doing yourself a, a large disservice if you have not read uh, The Six Frigates, which is, I would say, the single best account of uh, the early founding operations of the United States Navy. So go buy that. Uh, go buy the Pacific Trilogy, a great three-book volume on the Pacific War. 
Now it really goes into some of the, the higher level strategic thinking that I think a lot of books don't do nearly as well. And so again, a really good book. Thank you, Ian, for coming on. And until next time, fair winds and following seas. That's the atomic bomb exploding at Nagasaki. The film was taken in a B-29 many miles away. All of you who see this picture can judge for yourselves the extent of the menace to civilization of this new weapon. Civilized people can only demand that such power be directed not towards their obliteration, but to the benefit of mankind.